Well, last week we had uh, the children's choir here, and uh, so we're going to be picking up where we left off from the previous week. And if you remember correctly, we left off right in the middle of a pretty intense story. Uh, just to kind of remind everybody, if, if, so this is kind of part two of, of two weeks ago. If you missed it and you weren't here, you can catch up on the internet. But I will kind of give you a summary of what's taken place. I'm going to summarize 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24, down through uh, chapter 7, verse 2. Uh, Ben-Hadad was the king of Syria, and he had besieged or come against Samaria. Samaria was the capital city of Israel. Please remember, Israel had split into two nations at this point. You had the northern ten tribes was, were called Israel. The southern two tribes were called Judah. And uh, the, we're talking about the northern tribes here, Israel. The capital there was Samaria. Uh, Ben-Hadad had surrounded the capital the city there, Samaria, and he had basically besieged them or he'd cut off their supply line. He'd cut off their food chain. So there was no food coming into the city. Uh, so in a, that resulted in a great famine in the land of Samaria. They weren't able to get out to their crops and to their fields. The Syrian army had camped out there and would not let them out. And we read something interesting. Donkeys, heads, which normally wouldn't be eaten, were being sold for 80 shekels of silver. A pint of dove droppings, and yes, that's what I said, were being sold for five shekels of silver, just to give you an idea of how serious the famine was. People were eating anything and everything they could get their hands on. The king was walking around the wall one day, he sees two ladies arguing, and he realizes, hey, they're arguing about their own children, because they had become so hungry and so so close to starvation, so close to dying, they were actually eating each other, is, is how bad the situation had gotten, how hungry they had actually become. And the king tears his clothes. He's upset by this. And he realized what his kingdom had become. I'm sure in a sense he felt helpless. He was deeply grieved and angry. But the problem was he wasn't angry with the right person. He was angry. Remember who he was angry with? He was angry with Elisha, or essentially he was angry at God. Uh, he wasn't angry at himself. He wasn't angry at the sin of Israel because they had stopped following God. He was angry at God himself. And he wasn't angry at the people of Israel. He was angry simply with the prophet of God who was representing God. And uh, sometimes I mention that people find themselves in difficult and desperate circumstances. And they find themselves getting angry or complaining or blaming always not always but sometimes they're blaming the wrong person they're getting angry with the wrong person sometimes they're angry at the police officer who's doing their job to give them a ticket or they're angry with this person that brings bad news or they're angry with their boss who's doing his or her job and they be, we can become we can focus our anger and our frustration at the wrong people that's exactly what what the king of israel is doing at this point it's something that's common and oftentimes we need to take a look at ourselves and realize we are the ones that got ourselves into these situations we are the ones that made these bad decisions they want to blame everyone else instead of taking responsibility for their actions. And reality is he's the king. He's the leader of the country. He's the one responsible for the situation that they've gotten into. And if you remember correctly, I showed you how they got into the situation. I went back to De Deuteronomy chapter 28, where the Lord told the nation of Israel, he said, hey, I'll tell you guys, I'm going to make a promise to you. If you follow my commands and you obey me, you will be blessed. But I'm also going to attach a curse to that. Because if you fail to follow my commands... If you fail to do what I've told you to do, you're going to be cursed. And we actually went down to the exact verse where it told them way back in Deuteronomy that they would actually be eating their, each other because they would be so hungry. In other words, God's, God, what God told them was going to happen is all that they see playing out. It wasn't like it should have been a surprise to them. I went back and showed you that through Deuteronomy. So we have the king is mad. He's blaming Elisha. The city of Samaria is surrounded uh, by the Syrian army. There's no food available. But there is a promise from God which came through the prophet Elisha. Do you remember what it was? 
He said this, he said, tomorrow about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So the prophet Elisha makes this promise and it's unbelievable. The famine is so severe. The, the conditions are so poor. It's, it's, it's actually unbelievable. And one of the king's officers that was close to him, he thought, how could this be? How could it be? It's impossible. I mean, if a donkey's head is selling, they're, they're eating dove droppings. Look, look where they've come to. How could this be that all of a sudden fine flour is being sold for next to nothing at the, at the gate? This is impossible. And he actually said, if the Lord makes the windows of heaven open, it couldn't be possible. Even, in other words, what he's saying is even God couldn't do something like this. You don't understand our circumstance is so severe. We are in, in such bondage to the enemy. They're cutting off. Even God can't help us is essentially what he was saying. It's impossible, he says. It couldn't be done. Now, do you remember what Elisha told him? He said, you will see this with your own eyes, but you're not going to eat of it. You're going, he told the officer who said that, who's basically saying to God, it's impossible. He goes, you're going to see it happen, but you're not going to eat of it. You see, as long as a person can see a way for God to work things out, they'll believe. I, I can see how God would do something there, so they can tend to believe. But what happens when the promise seems impossible? What happens when there seems to be no way for this to get worked out or for this to happen? Are we going to limit God to only what the flesh can figure out? Are you going to limit God only, only to what you can figure out, what makes sense in your mind, what you can understand, or what your mind can muster up? Hey, God is able to work outside of the box. He's able to work outside of your understanding. He's able to work outside of your mind. And all too often we look and we see the circumstances and we think, well, even God can't fix this. It's too bad. It's too rough. But God's, God's ways are far above our ways. He's, he's, his, his power far surpasses ours. He can do things that we never thought were possible. And as this officer tells Elisha and tells the king, even God couldn't do something like that. Elisha tells him back, he says, in fact, he goes, you're going to see it happen, but you're not going to partake of it. You're not going to eat of it. And we pick up this story now in chapter 7, verse 3. So while the famine's going on inside of the city walls of Samaria... Here's what's going on right on the outside of the city walls. Chapter 7, verse 3. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, well, the famine is in the city and we'll die there. And if we sit here, we die anyways also. Now therefore come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive... We shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. These men were sick with a highly contagious disease. They had leprosy. Their skin was rotting off of them. Their body parts were literally falling off of them. They were outcasts. They weren't allowed into the city. And they're, they're basically, they're saying, listen, if we just stick around here, if we just stick here, not, nothing's going to, nothing's going to change. If we go inside the city, we're going to die. If we stay here, we're going to die. If we go to the Syrians, we might die. But if we go to the Syrians, at least they might keep us alive. The only hope they saw was trying to infiltrate the enemy and hope they could be kept alive. Now it's interesting to me, if you guys remember, I, li I like stuff like this. If you guys remember what happened to uh, Elisha's servant, Gehazi, 
Remember when Naaman was healed of leprosy and Gehazi came and, he, and Naaman tried to give uh, Elisha some gifts and he took off and, and Gehazi thought, well, I think we should go get some. Went after him, took the gifts and, and Gehazi was, con- uh, uh, the leprosy struck Gehazi and he, wa- and he was now leprous. Jewish priests, it's been unsustained, but Jewish scholars, not necessarily Christian scholars, but Jewish scholars believe that these men were Gehazi and his sons. They believed this is actually what they had become. They were outside the city walls with their leprosy. We can't, it's unfounded Jewish tradition. But anyways, it kind of makes some sense. It's, it's, it's certainly a possibility. It's kind of fun to throw those things out there. And their logic kind of makes some sense, doesn't it? I mean, here we are. We're dying. If we stay here, we're going to die. If we go in there, we're going to die. If we go there, we might die, but at least we might not die. So let's go to the place where we might not die. That logic seems to make certain, certain sense to me. But there's a problem with their logic. There, there's, there's something they're forgetting in their logic. You see, they're looking at their situation through human eyes with human wisdom and human understanding. They never really stop to consider the ways of God, the power of God, or the ability of God. They're simply looking at the the three options they came up with. None of them include the Lord. Wonder how often in our life we do the exact same thing. We forget to say, Lord, do you want to do something here? Is there something that you want to do miraculous here? Is there something that you want to do amazing here? And I love the Lord because the Lord's going to work in their life and we're going to see that happen. But they're not, they're not even including the Lord in their plans. May we be people who ask the Lord, Lord, is this something, how do you want me to handle this situation, Lord? Which way do you want me to go? Should I go into the city? Should I stay put? Should I go to the enemy? And then the fourth option could be, Lord, I think I'm just going to wait for you to lead me. But they go, they go, they, they, their logic makes sense from a human perspective. Let's see what happens. Although when you fail to look at the, when you fail to factor God into your equation, you just might miss the miracle that he wants to do. And I wouldn't want to miss that. Let's see what happens. Verse 5. And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. When they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and they fled at twilight and they left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate. They ate and drank. And they carried from it silver and gold and clothing. And they went and hid them. And they came back and they entered another tent. And they carried from there also. And they went and they hid it. What a surprise on their part, huh? Here comes the three lepers. We've been, they've been st- st- sitting for months looking at the Syrian army. Thousands and thousands of men camped out there besieging Samaria and all of a sudden these thousands and thousands of men they're not there they're gone notice it says they approached from the outskirts they approached the outskirts the language there are the wording there the words to the outskirts of the Syrian camp it implies that they came to the edge of the camp but it implies they went around around where they were it, it implies they snuck around and came up the backside so they wouldn't know they were coming from Samaria so they would look like they were coming as as faraway travelers they, 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 they tried to sneak around, and they came to the outskirts, and when they get there, they see nobody there. They probably thought, that's the best chance we have at staying alive. If they know we're coming out of Samaria, they're going to kill us. But if we sneak around, and we're wandering lepers, maybe they'll just let us go. That's probably their logic there. 
Some commentators <clears throat> suggest that as they were sneaking around to the outside, that was the footsteps that the Assyrians heard. That the Lord magnified their walking in the, in the woods or walking across the land. That the Lord made them sound like a mighty army and all you have is three lepers. It's amazing what the Lord can do. Now, we don't know that for sure. The scripture doesn't tell us that, but they, they suggest that's a possibility, and certainly I would suggest it is too. Verse 6 tells us what happened to the Syrians, why they ran away. The Lord caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots, horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites, the king of the Egyptians to attack us. They arose and fled at twilight, and they left the camp. Everything, their tents, horses, donkeys, it all, they all just left it all, left everything where it was and just took off running as fast as they could. Took nothing with them. A couple of points that I found interesting, and for those of you that like to read and study the scriptures, always try to look at things from a different perspective. You got some people involved. You got the lepers, you got the, you got the Israelites, and you got the Syrians, and, and just try to kind of figure out what, what's going on through in their minds, and it, it kind of gives you different perspectives. I noticed a couple things. Israel had absolutely no power to overcome their enemy. In their mind, they were as good as dead. They were powerless. They, they had no power, but they forgot about their God. They forgot that their God had power to overcome their enemy. And notice how God overcame the enemy in this circumstance. How did he do it? He overcame the attacking enemy by putting what? Thoughts in their mind, by putting fear in their mind, by letting them hear sounds of things that, that weren't actually there. He created something. He created a fear in their heart. He created a, a, an anxious heart in them. He created, they were so afraid, they took off running. We're going to read, they started taking their clothes off. Anything that would slow them down, they were leaving it by the wayside, leaving their swords, everything, just running it as fast as they could. The Lord created that in our heart. The same God who struck the previous Syrian army blind, remember, so they couldn't see, is the same God who now took the Syrian army and heard things that weren't there. The previous army couldn't see where they was go were going or couldn't see what was there. This army couldn't hear what was there. They heard things that didn't really exist. God's amazing how he does these things. He used thoughts of fear. They heard noises that didn't actually exist. Would the Lord do that to us? You think the Lord would put a thought of, you think the Lord would put fear in your heart? I mean, certainly there's a fear of God and a holy fear, but ultimately I don't think the Lord's going to make us fear and make us worry, and be anxious. Those go against what he wants us to be. He doesn't want us to be fearful. He doesn't want us to be anxious. And I'm not speaking of the fear of the Lord here. I'm speaking about the fear of mankind, the fear of what's going on around us. He doesn't put thoughts of fear or worry in the, in the minds of his people. He might use those thoughts to defend his people, like he's doing in this case. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves fear torment but he who fears has not been made perfect in love we love him because he first loved us you see when you as a believer or a believer in Jesus Christ when you start to experience thoughts of fear or thoughts of worry or being anxious and that stuff creeps into your life you can be confident they're not coming from the Lord the Lord wants to give you peace he wants to give he, he wants he doesn't want you he wants you to be anxious for nothing he wants you to give, he wants to bring the peace of God that surpasses all understanding upon you. He doesn't want you to be, he doesn't want you to be fearful. So the next time the enemy camps on the outskirts of your life and the circumstances seem impossible, remember how to look at the situation. 
What'd you say, Iris? Oh, for, that was 1 John 4.18 that I quoted. Yeah, sorry. 1 John 4.18. So the next time the enemy's camping outside of your life and he's throwing fear and you're, and you're anxious and you're worried about something, especially about stuff you can't control, right? We get worried and fearful over things that we have no control over. You can't fix it. Worrying's not going to help it. Put it in the Lord's hands. Let him handle it. Don't just look at the situation through human eyes, human wisdom, and human strength. Don't look at it. Don't forget that your God is greater than you are. And he sees things that you don't see. And he can do things that you can't do. He might just want to do something miraculous. And he has ways and he has means that you can't comprehend. And I can't comprehend. And that's the only kind of God I want. Because if my God is equal to me and I can understand him, what good is he? Then I can control him. You see, I want a God that I can look to in my time of need, in my time of trouble, and go, Lord, I don't don't know what you're doing. And I don't don't understand how this is going to play out, but I I know you're doing something. I know your word tells me that you love me. I know your word tells me that it's going to be okay, that I can be confident in you, and I can put my trust and my hope in you, not in my circumstances. The second thing that I found interesting in this passage, picture this. The three lepers, the lepers, they go out. They find the camp empty, right? There's nobody there. What's the city of Samaria doing? They're home starving to death now here's what i wrote down the siege was over the attack was over and the people didn't even know it they're still living as though they're still in bondage to the syrians now you see they don't even realize the attack's over they don't realize they're gone they don't they're missing the fact they're they're continuing on on life because they see the tents because they see the the camp still set up they think it's still occupied but in fact there's nobody there The siege was over and the people of Israel didn't know it. The battle had ceased and they weren't even aware of it. Free food was available, yet they were holed up in their city afraid to come out. How many times in our lives has the battle ended, the enemy fled, and we remained engaged with an enemy that wasn't even there? We're fighting a battle that doesn't need to be fought. Usually they're only fueled by our thoughts. We're terrified about what might happen. We're worried about what could happen. We're looking at our earthly and our worldly circumstances. And the Lord says, I've already given you victory over that. You don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay there. I've I've already taken care of that enemy for you. I've already solved that problem. But I guess if you want to stay there, you can. You you can live there if you want. I mean, you could stay in the city and starve. No one's going to, you know, they've been doing it for so long. They never thought, Lord, would you do something miraculous here? They saw no way for this situation to end in their human power but they never looked to their God. Instead, the king was mad at the man of God when he should have been saying, what does God want us to do? What's God going to do here? Instead of saying, God had already told him what he was going to do. God had already said, tomorrow you're going to buy flour, fine flour for next to nothing at the gate of the city. No faith. He didn't believe what God would do. Nobody in the city of Samaria enjoyed the victory. Nobody. Instead, they were all still locked away in their walled city, hungry and living as though the enemy was still surrounding them. And three lepers are out there gathering all the gold they can carry, all the silver they can carry, all the food they can eat, and everything they can drink. Verse 8, when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent, they ate and drank, carried from it silver and gold and clothing, and went and hid them. They came back and entered another tent and carried some there, some from there also, and they went and they hid it. They were, so they were hungry when they, first, they came to the first tent. They got food, they got drinks, they got water, whatever they needed. They found gold, silver, clothing, everything they needed. They stored it away. They hid it. That's what they do. Look, we found something. We've got to hide it. There's no reason to hide it. No one's there to take it. 
But they hide it because they don't want someone to take it. And they store it away. They go to the next tent. And they realize, wait a minute. We can't keep all this for ourselves. Our whole city back there, they're, they're, they don't know anything about this. They start feeling guilty about it. And they, they, they were enjoying the, they, they rightly enjoyed the, the miracle God provided, but they also realized the gift that God gave them came with the responsibility to share it. In other words, God provided them with a great gift, and they, could, they, they couldn't even take everything for themselves, and they realized, you know what, I've got to share what God's given me. That's a lesson for us, too. When God gives us something, sometimes we have an obligation to share what he's giving us. He's blessing us with something. As they're going from tent to tent, finding all that they can carry and hide, making multiple trips. They understood that to remain silent and to selfishly enjoy their blessings would be sin for them when their whole town, their whole brethren, all their brothers and sisters back in Samaria were starving and literally dying. That would be sin. They had the responsibility to go share this good news. This good news for them. Verse 9. Then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they went and they called to the gatekeepers of the city, and they told them, saying, We went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly no one was there. Not a human sound. Only horses and donkeys tied, and the tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out and they told it to the king's household inside. Remember, they were lepers. They weren't allowed inside the city. The only people they could communicate was with the gatekeepers. Those were the guys watching the gate. And they tell the gatekeepers what? Hey, we went over to the camp and they're all gone. They're not there. You can imagine they're eating. You know, they probably brought, a, brought some food back with them. They're, they probably brought some water. Look, we got stuff. We, we, it's fine. Come on out over there. And you got to imagine the gatekeepers, they're getting pretty excited. Hey, this is pretty cool. What's, what's going on? So what do they do? They call in, hey, hey king, we got, a, we, got, we got an issue here, king. Let me tell you what's going on, king. But it's the middle of the night, so they wake up the king. Let's see what the king says, verse 12. So the king arose in the night, and he said to his servants, Let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. Still no mention of God doing anything. Let me tell you. I'm the expert here. Let me tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we're hungry. Therefore, they've gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. The king says, no, I'm not buying that. No, no, I'm not buying that story. This is a trick. It's got to be a trick. I know what's happened. They're all hiding in the fields. They're all hiding under rocks and behind places. They're all hiding. And the minute we come out of the city, they're going to jump us. They're going to take us alive. And they're going to have access to our city. We're too smart for that. Everybody go back to bed. We're not, we're, not, we're not falling for that. If they had followed the king, what would have happened? They would have remained in bondage to an enemy that wasn't even there. They would have remained in bondage into, a, in, into an enemy that only existed in their mind. That was no longer real. The enemy had fled, yet they were still experiencing the bondage, even though the enemy was no longer in the camp. I often wonder if our Christian life can be like this. The enemy, Satan, has been conquered. Are you aware of that? He's been conquered. The war is over. Your sins are forgiven. Yet it still seems like so many Christians are stuck in bondage to the enemy and to sin. So many Christians struggle day after day. They're stuck in bondage, going back and forth, and stuck in sin. The only way the city of Samaria would remain in bondage 
as if they failed to believe the testimony of the lepers. You see, the lepers had testified of what they'd seen. They testified of what they'd experienced. They testified, hey, my belly's full. I've eaten. I'm, I'm full. I don't need any more food. I've eaten all I can. I've got all the gold I can carry in my backpack or whatever satchel they had. That, that's their testimony. If they don't believe that, they're going to remain in bondage to an enemy that doesn't even exist, that only exists in their mind. The only way a Christian the only way a Christian will remain in bondage is if they fail to believe the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. The only way that a Christian is going to remain in bondage to the enemy is if you fail to fully believe the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. If you are walking through this life in bondage to something, it's because you choose to be in bondage to something, not because you have to be in bondage to it. His work at the cross was enough it sets you free. It forgave your sins, both past, present, and future. You no longer have to be in bondage. Read your word and see that the enemy has been defeated. Do you believe the enemy has been defeated? Do you, do you believe that? Do you realize, hey, we, there's no battle that has to take place. Let, let me just read a couple of verses to you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He, speaking of Christ, the Lord, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Don't let the enemy tell you that your sins aren't forgiven. Let the Bible tell you that they are. Colossians chapter 2, the very next chapter, verses 13 and 15, You being dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Amen. That, 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 it, let me, Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. You, you, you have victory. Listen carefully. We, you, I, we need to understand that we are free from the bondage of the enemy. We're free from the bondage of sin, and we shouldn't be living like we're not. If we're in bondage of sin, it's because we're allowing ourselves to be there. It's like we're in the city of Samaria. We're being told of the good news that we're free, and we're going, no, nah, I don't believe that. No, nah, I still see the camp out there. I still see, I still see what the enemy has left. I still see the, the, the evidence that the enemy is there. no. You're free from that, but you have to believe it in order to be free. Maybe it's time to believe the testimony, get out of the city, and realize that your God has done a miracle. That's what salvation is. It's a miracle. It's the greatest miracle. Of all of the healings in the, from the dead, everything else, for the Lord to be able to say, your sins are forgiven. That's, a, that's unbelievable. That when the Lord looks at you, he doesn't see who you are. He sees who you're going to become. He sees you glorified before his presence someday. He doesn't look at your mistakes and your shortcomings every week and, oh, yeah, there you are. You blew it again. Same bad attitude. I don't know what's wrong with you. I thought you'd finally get it by now. No. He's long-suffering. He understands. He's forgiven. We need to be reminded of this because how is it that we get attacked? Satan wants to tell us that we're not free. He wants to tell us that we can't get, we can't get free. He wants to tell us that you're addicted to something. No. We're free from everything. It's just are we going to choose to walk in that freedom? We don't have to. We can stay holed up in the city like the Samaritans. Or we can come out and believe the testimony. <sighs> the enemy is powerless over you. 
even when it comes to temptation. Do you know that? He's powerless. You say, Rob, but sometimes temptation can be so great. Let me read to you James chapter 4, verse 7. James 4, 7 says, Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Will flee from you. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. It doesn't mean it'll be easy. It doesn't mean that the desire for sin is going to go away. But you can submit to God, resist the devil, and it doesn't say he might flee from you. It says he will flee from you. He will flee from you. The only power he has over us is the power that we give him. Tell him a liar. Whenever he reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. He's headed for the lake of fire. Fortunately for the people of Samaria, because think about the whole city there. The whole city is being besieged by the enemy that doesn't even exist. The testimony comes in and the king says, ah, I don't believe that, that's impossible. But fortunately, there's a smart person there. There's wise counsel to the king. Look at verse 13. One of his servants answered and says, said, please, let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, they may either become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed, I say, they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. In other words, he said, listen, king, if they stay here, they're going to die. If they go out, they're going to die. Let's go find out. Let's do a little exploration here. Let's just do a little test. Let's send a few, let's send a few horses and chariots out there, and let's go find out what happens. Let's go see. In verse 14, king says, okay. Verse 14, therefore, they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan, and indeed, all the road was full of garments and weapons which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and they told the king. They went all the way to the Jordan River along the way. What did they find? They found clothes, coats that had been taken off. Anything that would slow them down, they'd left. That's how fast they were getting out of there. They didn't even take their weapons with them. They threw their swords on the ground. Anything they could use, all of it's left behind. Like a yard sale going down the road. I mean, just stuff laying everywhere. It's like, what happened to this place? They go back and they tell the king. Verse 16, the people went out and they plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Don't ever doubt if the word of the Lord is going to come to pass. If someone speaks to you the word of the Lord outside of this Bible, doubt it. But when you come across it in scripture and it's the word of the Lord, you don't have to doubt it. The, proph the prophecies that aren't fulfilled, I promise you, will be fulfilled. It's the word of the Lord. We know it's coming to pass. We know it's true. We know that this Bible is the inspired word of God. We know that it will all come to true. Some, all, all come true, all come to pass someday. We don't have to doubt. We don't have to wonder. It's the word of the Lord. And it all came just like Elisha had predicted. How did it turn in such a moment? The Lord did a miracle. He had the, he had the army running in fear. Now, Remember the scoffer? Remember the officer? Said, even God couldn't do something like that. If the windows of heaven were to open, this couldn't happen. This is impossible. It was the king's officer. Look what it says in verse 17. Now the king had appointed the officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. 
So it happened, just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two seas of barley for a shekel and a sea of fine flour for a shekel shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. Then that officer had answered the man of God and said, Now look, if the Lord would make the windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Isn't that exactly what Elisha said would happen? The king said, all right, you be in charge of the gate. I'm putting you in charge of the gate. And the people, what do they hear? Food. You get in front of a hungry crowd that's that hungry, that are resorting to those kinds of things, you better get out of the way. There's food. They're going to go get food. It wasn't even gold and silver. It was all they could get. And they got so much that just like Elijah said, wheat and barley was selling for next to nothing in the city gate. All in a night. All in a moment. Don't ever underestimate the power of God and what he can do in a situation. Don't ever forget, you look all around you, but don't ever forget to look up. Don't ever forget to look in God's direction. Do you see the gospel message kind of sown throughout this story? Do you see the power of the gospel message? Let me see if I can explain it to you. Israel, think about that as the believer or even the unbeliever. The the person who's under the control of the enemy. Maybe it's the believer who's stuck in bondage to a sin. Or maybe it's the unbeliever who has no other choice but to be controlled by the world and, the, and their own flesh. And then you have Syria represents the enemy, represents Satan. And, and it, it's such a clear picture. The enemy has God's people in bondage, just like the Syrians had the Israelites in bondage. The enemy has God's people in bondage to sin. They've been besieged, they've been cut off from the Lord. Their sin is keeping them from the Lord. They're stuck. They can't get out. They're starving spiritually, in other words. There's no spiritual food coming, and the enemy's got them cut off. He separated them. Then the Lord defeated the enemy. Jesus defeated the enemy at the cross, didn't he? But yet there's still people that are separated because they don't understand that, or they they don't want to believe that. They're still stuck there. The enemy's been defeated by the Lord, but the people of God, they're not aware of it sometimes. You see, they they're not convinced. And oftentimes they're not convinced because they're not experiencing it. And I want to say this to you. Believe it and you'll experience it. You won't experience it until you believe it. Until you believe that you're actually free from sin. And I'm not speaking that someone can walk in sinless perfection. I'm not talking about that. I don't, I don't believe that we can, you know, as long as we have a flesh, we're going to be susceptible to sin. But I do believe as a Christian, we no longer have to walk in habitual sin. It no longer has to be an everyday part of our life. And we're not going to experience that until you believe that you have that power, that God has given you that power. Sin is not greater than the power of God. You have the power to be free. But oftentimes the Christian, the believer, surrounded by the enemy, they've been cut off. God defeated the enemy at the cross. He covered that sin. It's not even going to be held against you. Yet they're stuck in bondage because, like the king, ah, there must be a trick. There must be something there. People of God say, no way, it's impossible. No way, it's not possible. I'm not experiencing that. We don't believe that. Lots of Christians get stuck right there. They spend their entire life. Yes, they're believers. Yes, they're saved. They spend their entire life walking through their life trying to overcome sin, struggling back and forth, trying to, I'm stuck in, I'm st- I'm stuck in an addiction. I'm stuck in something. I, I, I try and I fail. I try and I fail. I try and I fail. They go back and forth and back and forth. And they never come into what God really has for them because they get stuck there. If that's you or you know anybody that's stuck there, I'm going to tell you the secret. It's real, real easy. If you want to study it in depth, go back and study Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7 on the, on the internet. You can pick up the, the, uh, the messages for there. 
But our old man is dead. Our flesh is dead. It no longer has dominion, Paul says. We're to reckon it dead. We no longer have to listen to it. You don't have to listen to your body. Do you know that? You don't have to listen to your body. If your body says, hey, I want to eat, you know, a, a triple cheeseburger with a large fry, that, that's what really tastes good. You know, you can tell your body, no, that's not good for me. I'm not going to eat it. Oh, you can listen. You can go down that road if you want. Certainly you can. But you don't have to listen. You can tell your body, no, I'm not going there. You can tell your body, no, I'm not doing that. No, but, and, and your body will come against you. Have you ever fasted before? And if you ever go on a long fast, what happens is that, you know, you miss the first meal and it's not too bad. You miss the second meal, what happens? Your stomach starts growling. It starts, my, my stomach's been growling tonight because I haven't had my dinner yet. So I, I can feel it growling. You know, it's, what's it telling me? You need to eat. What happens if I don't eat tonight? Nothing. I'm not, I'm not sick. I'm not diabetic. I don't have a sugar problem. But if I was to go home and go to bed without eating, it might even keep me awake, right? I might not be able to sleep. I need to get something to eat. But I can tell my stomach, no, I don't have to eat. Nothing's going to happen if I don't eat. But we have to learn as Christians, we can tell our bodies no. But you know, eating becomes, a, it becomes an option for me. I have an option when I go home. I can either eat my dinner or I cannot eat my dinner. As long as there's an option, there'll be a battle within my flesh. As long as my body knows there's an option of eating, my stomach's going to growl. And you know what happens when you miss your third meal? On the second day of fasting, you get a headache. Most people do. You start to get a headache. You start to get irritable. You know, you start to get cranky. I'm not eating. I'm at... You know what happens by the third day? It all goes away. Because your body goes, well, I guess he's not going to feed me. I'm not doing any good anyways. That's, that's how your body works. It wants to draw you in. It wants to lead you. But we have to go, you know what? I'm not following my body. I'm not follow- I, don't, I don't have to follow that. As long as I have a choice, there can be a struggle. When I remove the one, one side of that choice, there's no longer a struggle anymore. If I, if, if I go home tonight and I go, all right, I can either eat my dinner or I cannot eat my dinner, and I go home and I'm going to go, all right, what do I want to do? My stomach's going to start growling even more. I might even get stomach pains. But once I make up my mind, I'm not eating, no matter what happens. I'm not, I'm not doing it. There's no, there's no more struggle anymore. I can only struggle if there's a choice. Once that choice is removed, it's not a choice anymore. And it's only one option. It's, not an, it's, it's the only thing I do. See, oftentimes Christians struggle in their flesh because they want to follow what their flesh wants. And they give their flesh too many options. They end up letting their flesh lead them rather than, rather than them leading their flesh. You still have it, but you have the ability to tell it what to do. And you do not need to be in bondage to it. What did Paul say? I beat my flesh into subjection. Now, I'm not physically hurting yourself, but you lead your flesh around. You tell your body what it's going to do and what it's not going to do. Don't blame your response to the flesh on I didn't have any other choice because you do have a choice because that's why Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you could say, no, I'm not doing that. I don't live like that anymore. I don't do those things. And hopefully as we progress as Christians, there's lots of things that our flesh used to do that we don't do anymore. There's lots of the way we talk, the way we act, all of those things should change as we progress in Christianity. When the people of God respond to the word of God, they can accomplish the work of God and fulfill the calling of God, and then they will experience the blessings of God. Think about that. When the people of God respond to the word of God, they can accomplish the work of God, they'll fulfill the calling of God for their, per- their life, and then they will experience the unbelievable blessings of God. That's what we need to be. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, as we close out this message tonight i pray that you spoke to our hearts i pray that we're not stuck in the city wondering if we're really free if there's really spiritual food on the outside i pray that we would believe the testimony 
the good news that came to us, that, hey, we're free from sin. We don't have to be bound in it any longer. Lord, as we take these next few minutes to seek you quietly, if that's us, if we've been stuck, if we've been in bondage to a certain sin, Lord, may tonight be the night that we cast it off. May we lay it aside. May we make the decision before you, saying, Lord, that's not who I am, and that's not what I'm going to do. If we need to repent, may we repent. If we need to come to you, may we do that.